Good morning, everybody. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Thanks so much for being here, especially if you're a guest. If you do want to get connected into our church family, there's a little connection card you're handed as you walked in. You can tear that off, fill it out to whatever you're comfortable, and we'll get in contact with you about how to get connected into our church community. You can drop it in the giving stations in the back or take it to the info desk on your way out, and we'll, we'll help you get plugged in and connected. Uh, if you've been on our email list, you've got a warning this week that today's content's going to be uh, a little heavier, uh, zippier than is typical. And so if you're uh, not prepared to talk with your kids about some of these, those issues, uh, especially like sexuality related, I just want to give you a chance to now you can check them in a kids ministry or go for a walk in the rain. That is your option. Um, but just want to let you know ahead of time, um, we're talking about human dignity and especially what happens when a culture loses a biblical vision for human dignity. Because we all assume it. We walk around presuming this belief that humans have rights, they should be treated with dignity, that they're valuable, that they should have equal protection under the law, etc., etc. And we assume that, but most cultures throughout most of human history did not assume that. And I say, like, imagine with me if, like, 20 years from now, if nobody believed that humans had rights and that they were just kind of differently evolved animals. What would that be like? It's pretty difficult to predict the future, but it's a little easier to read the past. And so a uh, historian, not Spider-Man, named Tom Holland, uh, he wrote this book called Dominion, and he gives us a little window into what first century culture was like when there is no idea of the image of God that was prevalent within society. He tells this story. He says, Across the Roman world, this is 2,000 years ago, wailing at the sides of roads or on rubbish heaps, babies abandoned by their parents were a common sight. Others might be dropped down drains, there to perish in the hundreds. The odd eccentric philosopher aside, few had ever queried this practice. Indeed, there were cities who by ancient law had made it a positive virtue, condemning to death deformed infants for the good of the state. Sparta, one of the most celebrated cities in Greece, had been the epitome of this policy, and Aristotle himself had lent it the full weight of his prestige. Girls in particular were liable to be winnowed ruthlessly. Those who were rescued from the wayside would invariably be raised as slaves. Brothels were full of women who as infants had been abandoned by their parents, so much so that it had long provided novelists with a staple of their fiction. Pretty much everyone else had always taken it for granted until that was the emergence of a Christian people. We cannot presume on the dignity and value of every human apart from the biblical vision of God's image in people. And so we're going to talk about that today. And here's where we're going. So we've got kind of three big ideas here. Number one, humans are creative glorious and honorable works of art from the hand of God. Number two, secularism cannot explain human exceptionalism or human dignity, so we'll try to destroy it in our society along with it. And number three, this church is full of murderers. If you think that's not you, I promise you, probably is, we'll get there, uh, so buckle up. So let me pray, and then we'll talk. Uh, Jesus, thank you for the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1. Thank you for how it elevates uh, humans. Thank you for how it enriches our perspective, what it means to be made in your image. Lord, I hope that you'll help us 
uh, see the reality of what it means to be human and that we treat ourselves and others uh, accordingly. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, point number one, humans are creative, glorious, and honorable works of art. That text that Aaron just read for us begins in Genesis 1.26. It says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, that we are meant to be pictures, physical pictures of God most high. This is why we have images and pictures in our house. They're meant to remind us of and point us to the person who it's a picture of. That's why you have pictures of things in your house. Uh, That we, as God's people, as all created human beings, not just people who follow God, that every single human on earth is an image of God, meant to see and remind you that God exists, that God is real, and that God is here. And so we are supposed to see one another and be reminded of God. Now, at a baseline level, nobody here does that all the time. We misinterpret, we minimize, we, we push aside the doctrine of the image of God. Most of you look in the mirror every morning and you say, oh God, and you're not thinking about God. And instead, you should look in the mirror in the morning and say, image of God. How would your view of yourself change if you began this habit or this practice of looking yourself in the eye, looking yourself up and down and saying, that is the image of God. That is the page one testimony about what it means to be human. You are made in the image of God. That you ought to feel wronged when people treat you when people treat you as something less than that. You ought to feel ashamed when you treat other people as less than that. That this doctrine of the image of God is radically countercultural. It was countercultural when Moses wrote Genesis by the power of the Spirit a long time ago, and it's countercultural for us now. And we need it. And virtually zero aspects of the breakdown of our, our psychologies and our sociologies and our politics can't somehow be traced to this view of denial or dismissal of the radical perspective of the image of God, that we are made in God's image after our likeness, God says. Then he goes on to say, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, that males and females together are the image of of God. Verse 28 says, and God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. That means have babies, which means make more image bearers. That we're putting, you ever like been to someone's house and you're like, why do you have so many pictures of this one person? But let, it's like, like, I think about how many pictures I took of my first kid versus how many pictures I took of my second kid. And it's not on purpose, but it's just kind of like, like when all you have is one thing to focus on, you can take, you should literally take 50% less pictures of your second kid just mathematically. But it's just how it works. That like when you, you kind of like have your attention, you just take more pictures. And so God is saying, let's make more pictures. We have more pictures of me all over the place. Now that's not like Kim, Kim Jong-un egoism, you know, like uh, the, the dictator who's saying, put a picture of me in every place. Like if we came to the church and there's a picture of Luke Simmons in every single classroom, you'd be like, this place is bad, red flag, we should leave, right? But, but when it's God saying, I want people to be reminded of me all over the place. So make lots of little image bearers, spread them out, get them all over the place. That we image God in the fact that we create images of God. That we create like he creates. That's part one of the task of the image bearer. Part two is that we would subdue and have dominion. 
This is imaging God by creating through work. This is the work of our hands. Subduing is like kneading bread. Dominion is like stomping on grapes. It's creative force that we image God through doing creative work. Not just sexually creative work, but like economically creative work. We make more image bearers and we develop the world. That this is part of what it means to be made in God's image. That we think about like, is this all I, all I get in my life? Is like I go to work and then I have a family and then I go to work and have a family. It's like that's kind of Genesis 1. That's the cycle. You fruitful and multiply, you subdue and have dominion. And obviously there's Sabbath in there and rest and all the enjoyment of creation. But that is like the page one vision. That we have families and we work. Basic image of God stuff. Now this idea of dominion, like this is royal language. It's wild. Like you think about like your first day on the job and your boss comes to you and says, here's a project for you. Let me know how it goes. That's kind of like, wow, it's a lot of trust on day one. I remember the first time I came to this church like seven and a half years ago, I was 25 and Luke had me preach the first week of Advent. I remember thinking like, I don't know if that's wise, but thanks. <laughs> like it feels good to be believed in, to be trusted. Kind of like this, like a nervous stewardship thing. And on page one of Bible, God's saying, I'm delegating some dominion to you. That's bestowing of dignity, bestowing of trust, bestowing of responsibility. You have the responsibility and the authority to accomplish this task. That God gives humans dignity and value and purpose and responsibility and made in God's image. Page one of the Bible. Now you've got to understand, now when Moses is writing Genesis 1, moved by the Spirit, he had just came from a line of 400 years of slaves in Egypt. That the Jewish people have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. God sets them free from Egypt. And while they're on the way to the promised land, wandering around, God moves Moses to write down human history. And so we here, humans are made in the image of God. And you kind of go like, yeah, sure. Human rights, human dignity, meh. But to people whose parents and parents and parents and parents and parents and parents have been slaves for 400 years, and they say, you're made in God's image. They're probably going like, that's not what Pharaoh told me. I was just a workhorse. I was just like a smarter workhorse. Like, no, human exceptionalism, human dignity. The first thing God tells the suffering sinners who are leaving Egypt is you have dignity, value, purpose, authority, responsibility, fruitful and multiply, subdue and dominion, God's image. And the creation story itself reflects this. God makes this and it was good. God makes this and it was good. God makes this and it was good. And the way that the sixth day ends, and God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Things were good till God adds humans, and now it's very good, the most good. That humans add, they don't take away from the creation. More and more it's popular to not believe that. You can just watch the movie The Matrix. Humans are a virus here, just, you know, CO2. Blah, 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 you know. It's like, that's not Genesis 1. Very good. And so most basically, if you want to like start on your path to believing the Bible, you need to look yourself in the mirror every morning and say, image of God, dignity, value, purpose, responsibility, image of God. The second thing you can do 
is when you walk around and you look at people and they're annoying you or you're tempted to objectify them, you need to pray into your breath, image of God. Like we, as a human society, Christians and non-Christians alike, we desecrate God's image all the time. There's even like, like schools of thought within Christianity that try to minimize the doctrine of the image of God in humans because, well, after the fall, people lose the image of God, so that's why we can enslave those people. Christians have been bad at this. And so just so you know, people remain in God's image. After the fall, we see this from James 3, verses 9 and 10. Uh, here's what James writes. He says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. James is highlighting this is insane that you would bless God and then curse the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Like imagine if I uh, had a picture of Luke Simmons up here and I just spit on it and then threw it. And I said, but I like Luke. You'd think, that guy's crazy. I thought about actually printing out a picture and spitting on it, but I was like, it, it felt, it would feel so like weird. I was just like, I'll just talk about it. I won't actually do it, you know? <laughs> but we do that all the time. I love you, Lord. I hate that guy. I love you, Lord. Ah, that stupid coworker. God, image of God. You can't do that. James is saying, this ought not be so. Which brings me to my next point. We talk about the image of God. Dignity and value. This last piece or like, is that secularism can't explain human exceptionalism. So it will try and destroy it in our society along with it. All right, so I'm gonna read a couple quotes from a couple highly respected philosophers. A guy named Peter Singer, who's the head of bioethics and ethics at Princeton, or he at least was until, I think he retired literally this month. And a guy named David Benatar, who's well-respected. Both these guys are atheistic, naturalistic, ethicists and philosophers. And the thing that, so these quotes are jarring, uh, but I want you to be aware of the trajectory of a society that's trying to remove God and remove the image of God and the implications of what that means for us. Because uh, Peter Singer is saying the quiet part out loud about the application of atheism to moral reasoning. Right? Because in these guys' worldviews, humans are just homo sapiens. They are animals like other animals. They're just differently organized bags of fizzing molecules. There is no such thing as human exceptionalism or human dignity. These are just stories that Christians have made up to propagate this human rights thing. And so any of the resistance to things like infanticide, bestiality, uh, veganism, sexual assault and pedophilia, all of these things are just Christians imposing their moral values on society. And so I'm not 
reading these just for shock value, but I do feel like when you think about being tossed to and fro by the winds and waves of culture, I want you all to understand that there are a lot of things that were fringe 40 years ago that are mainstream now, and a lot of these things that are fringe now will be mainstream in 40 years or sooner. And if we don't hold with a tight fist to the doctrine of the image of God and human dignity, it's not just that Christianity will be marginalized, it'll be hard for us, it's that the very idea of the image of God and the implications of it for like how we treat people will be snuffed and smashed and spread aside. So Peter Singer says this about infanticide. He is pro-infanticide. Human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. The life of a newborn is of less value than the pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. Talk about a return to Roman culture. He's our, so he's pro-abortion to 40 weeks and then pro-infanticide passed beyond that. Because he's saying, what's the difference between being in the uterus or being just outside the uterus? What's the difference? These things, these, these bags of molecules, they're not any, they don't have any more self-awareness than a chimpanzee. Why would we not? So he's being consistent. Then he talks about this next thing on vegetarianism. So I'm not against being vegetarian. Just want to be very clear about that. Um, I am against being a vegetarian for the reason of like animal rights, right? So if you watch Forks Over Knives and we're convinced, that's fine. I'm not worried about that. But if you um, think that animals shouldn't be eaten because they're the same as humans and one notch away, like from a consistently naturalistic point of view, what's the difference between cannibalism and eating steak? Nothing. Uh, so, we, so here's what he says. A vegetarianism is the antidote to speciesism, which is like racism, but between different species, uh, which is an attitude of bias against a being because of the species to which it belongs. Typically, humans grow, show speciesism when they give less weight to the interest of non-human animals than they give to similar interests of human beings. So Peter Singer is saying we should be giving the same interest to non-human species as we do to species because humans and animals are really the exact same, just with slightly more uh, bigger proof of the cortex. There's no real difference between these things. Then he also writes this about bestiality. Who has not been at a social occasion disrupted by the household dog gripping the legs of its visitor and vigorously rubbing against them? The host usually discourages such activities, but in private, not everyone objects to being used by his or her dog this way and occasionally mutually satisfying activities may develop. If humans are just animals... Tell me the difference. David Benatar says this about sexual assault and pedophilia. The view that of sexual ethics that would fully explain the wrong of rape and pedophilia would also rule out promiscuity. So David Benatar is so committed to promiscuity and he's so committed to being morally, philosophically consistent that he has to say, if we're going to rule out promiscuity, we have to rule out these other two things. Maybe we shouldn't rule out these other two things. Have you seen the animal kingdom? It's wild. You watch the Nature Channel, merciless. Have you seen the way that most kind of animals reproduce and mate? Consent is not on the table. These philosophers are saying consistent things with evolutionary naturalism. It feels weird, it feels awkward, it feels yucky, and I tell you what, it should because it is. The amount of people who like profess we don't need God to be moral 
but then hijack all of Christian morality so they can keep being moral. I'm telling you, there's a lot of people who are more moral than us, and it's not necessarily because they are Christians, but it is because they are hijacking Christian moral thought and applying it to their lives even if they don't want Jesus. I don't think you have to be, more, to be Christian to be moral. I do think you have to borrow from Christianity to be moral. Not all atheists do these things, but they don't have a good reason not to do these things that they get from atheism. So their whole argument is the reason these things are taboo is just a hangover from Christianity. And I want to say yes, and that's a good thing. Here's a verse for us today, Deuteronomy 27:21. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal, and all the people shall say, Amen. We'll try that again. And all the people shall say, amen. Okay. Humans are exceptional. We're not just an animal with some more reasoning attached. That's not how it works. Not only that, but we can eat animals and not feel bad about it. So Genesis 9.3 says this, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. That verse didn't say it, and everyone said amen, but you got Everyone said amen, so there you go. Like, I want us to understand the slippery slope of what happens is when you yank the image of God, yank human exceptionalism, yank human dignity out of a philosophical system, what you get is all that stuff I just talked about. Now, it's really easy for us to sit back and be like, man, those people are gross. Man, those people don't get it. Man, those people must be far from God. But the reality is like, we miss and misapply the image of God all the time. All the time. I don't want anyone in here walking out thinking those people are gross. I want us walking out of here thinking I need to hold more tightly to the doctrine of the image of God. Which brings me to my third point. This church is full of murderers. If it's your first time, you still have time to get out. So you can um, <laughs> But you know, like, laws are written for a reason, right? Some of you have, like, been had to, like, have all these HR policies at work, and you got to file your tax things this way. It's super annoying because some, like, laws are written because someone did it the first time. They're like, oh, got to make that illegal now. You know, so like, that's how it works. Like, there are these laws in the Bible that you're like, why do you even need that law? Who's doing the bestiality? Thing? Who's, who's, and you're going, like, it was, like, normal. Hey, just so you know, God's people don't do that type of stuff. Moses had to say that. Just like if you like, want to memorize more scripture, here's an easy one for you. This is Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. We cannot take for granted some of the most basic Bible verses. Whole human societies from the Nazis to the Soviets have decided, oh, well, there's, two, there's people you can kill and people you can't kill. This kind of classism between who you're allowed to murder. Like, it's, you shall not murder. Murder is the ending of a human life without legitimate cause. And so this word murder apply, appears kind of a lot throughout the Old Testament. It includes both, like, uh, like, if you think about how in our murder laws we have manslaughter, we have first degree, second degree, third degree. Like, the, the, the Hebrew word for murder inc- includes all of that type of thing. Like, it's both negligence and it's uh, just, like, willful plan, premeditated murder. But here's, here's a verse that I want us to, like, sit with. This is out of the New Testament, 1 John three fifteen. 15. Uh, uh, John writes this. 
everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Were all murderers yet? Hatred is like um, barring and, and holding negative feelings. So this is not just like biological brother. You're like, uh-huh, I'm an only child, not me. So that's not the point. It's, I'm talking, it's like, it's like these people we have a relationship with, like just wishing bad things would happen, like hoping that they would just not, just wishing that they would not be around, like this like desire for the worst to happen. Uh, so if, if I'm honest, I think I was probably fit this category by at least age like seven. Like wishing that the image bearer of God would be extinguished. Wanting that. Dreaming about your life without that person in it. Like much less middle school. Like none of us make it past middle school without like falling in this murder thing. And here's uh, not even just hatred, but anger too. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, but whoever murders and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So you're like, well, I didn't hate him. I was just angry with him. Okay, well, Jesus got you on that one too. So now, now we're all murderers. Like, if you think that these verses are, like, ridiculous, like, come on, angry, hate, that's nothing. Like, that just reveals to us how low a view of the image of God we have. Again, I keep using this picture of Luke. If I had a picture of Luke and I brought it up to you and you're like, get that away from me. <laughs> like, well, what's wrong with you and Luke? Like, oh, nothing. I just hate that picture. You know, it's just, it, the image of God and how we're triggered by the image of God reveals to us a lot of what we believe about God. <laughs> and you can imagine a world, imagine a church, imagine a small group, imagine a, if everyone like thoroughly and consistently and really believe that every person that interacted with is made in God's image. So this word murder has a range. I want to give you an example of, of another range of this that's again countercultural and increasingly so is countercultural. In Exodus 21, 22 through 23, it says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child, children come out, that's like a um, premature labor, but there's no harm to the child. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him. He shall pay the judges as the judge determined. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. So in Exodus 21, 22, and 23, the unborn child that is destroyed, the penalty is life for life because the unborn child is a person made in God's image. Psalm 139, 13 and 15 reveals the intimacy with which God is involved in our lives even at conception. You formed my inward parts. You knit me together. This is intimately involved in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven. That what happens inside the womb, God is engaged with it, and it's a secret to others, but it's not a secret to God, but he's intricately weaving and knitting and forming and seeing and connected to the unborn child. Not only that is there's a form of 
uh, destruction of made in the image of God, but there's this picture of negligence, uh, a picture of like preventable but not um, preventable view of this. It says this in Jeremy 19, five and six, the same word that is used in thou shalt not murder says, when someone goes into the forest with his neighbors to cut wood and his hand swings the ax to cut down the tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor, so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood, hot in hot anger, pursue the murderer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally. Though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbors in the past. So this is kind of describing more of like a manslaughter situation, like a, a sleep behind the wheel and driving situation. That person is called a murderer, but it's a less severe sentence because it was a murder not through like commission, but through negligence. Um, I do think there's a lot of uh, like our own like health and respecting and caring about our own health that might fit in this category. Basic things like wearing a seatbelt, encouraging others to wear a seatbelt, this protection and preserving of human life is part of this. Most basically it means if you're gonna cut a tree down, tighten the head of the ax. That's like a good move to do. Uh, and so I just want you all to know that like tragic deaths, unknown deaths, I know statistics on abortion and how often they happen, miscarriage and how often they happen and the way we grieve these things, uh, past regrets, recent regrets, that when we all stand before the Lord in judgment, he's only has murderers to look at. That we all have participated in the desecration of the image of God in a variety of means and ways. Think about like lust and objectification, cursing, slandering, gossiping, abortion, negligence, like we all need to, when confronted with the doctrine of the image of God, see ourselves as radically in need of the grace of Jesus. And so I know people in this church that have had abortions and have pressured others into abortions and who, in a, I don't want to, it's not just this issue, but it's all these issues. They're going to say, like, nobody is here saying everyone should be like me on this issue. But nonetheless, we need to deal soberly with it and recognize that we need the grace of Jesus. And we can't really acknowledge we need the grace of Jesus until we call our sin what it was. That being said, I, we had a long conversation with our elders a couple weeks ago. Um, there's this website or this group called Arizona Pro-Life Pastors and they have a statement. And uh, uh, I think the pastors on staff all signed it and our elders are all in favor of it. And uh, I was encouraged to share this with everyone today. And I just want you to read the statement from the Arizona Pro-Life Pastors organization. Because um, there is, like, the only thing I disagree with on this is where it says abortion's not a political issue. Um, but we're literally talking about politics, so I don't totally understand what they meant by that. Um, it's certainly more than a po political issue, but it's not less than a political issue, and Jesus Christ is king, so I'm fine with political issues. But we haven't really gone this uh, direct on particular policy issues before, but I just want to read this statement. There's something coming out called the Abortion Access Act, and here's the big idea, is please do not sign their petition, and please vote no when and if they get enough signatures to make it onto the ballot. All right, so 
I'm going to read the statement. So, whereas every human life is valuable because every human life born and preborn is wonderfully made in the image of God, whereas abortion is the ending of an innocent human life and results in danger and hurt towards women, whereas the church is here to compassionately serve and support vulnerable women and organizations we support uh, in a variety of ways, whereas abortion is not a political issue but a biblical moral one, whereas effort is underway to change the Arizona Constitution to allow children to be aborted during all nine months of development in the womb, the undersigned Arizona pastors urge every person to refuse to provide a signature to put the Arizona Abortion Access Act on the ballot and should also vote against the act or any similar measure if it appears on the ballot. Uh, let me tell you just a little bit about the Abortion Access Act, what it is. Uh, it allows unlimited abortion up to birth under the broad mental health exemption that is frequently used to rubber stamp late-term abortions. It removes most safety standards at abortion clinics and forbids any regulation that would get in the way of someone getting an abortion. It eliminates the required qualified medical doctor needed to detect potential complications that put girls' and women's health and safety at risk. It gives broad leeway to who can provide abortions, leaving girls and women in the hands of unqualified providers who have no expertise in obstetrics. It shuts out moms and dads when their minor daughter needs them most by removing a requirement that parents are informed prior to their minor daughter getting an abortion. Uh, minors need a parent signature to go on field trips uh, and take Tylenol and get an Instagram account, but not for abortion under this new measure. Uh, sh shield sex offenders who force their victims to get abortions to cover their crimes by forbidding punishment of anyone who aids or assists in someone getting an abortion, opens the door to taxpayer-funded abortion, and threatens the conscience protections for healthcare workers forcing them to participate in abortion. So you, they're going door to door collecting signatures for that and we need to pray and ask that the Lord would inhibit their efforts and if it gets on the ballot, it's important that we vote no on that. Why? Uh, not for partisan party politics but because the image of God has dignity and value without exception. Regardless of IQ, regardless of viability, regardless of anything. And putting conditions on who qualifies as the image of God puts us one step closer to the Nazis. Now, I want you to consider who wrote these words in Genesis and Exodus that I read. Moses. Easy for him to say, right? Uh, not easy for him to say. In Exodus 2, we hear a story about Moses, and here's how the story goes. Exodus 2, verse 12. Moses looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. This is a murder. Moses wrote five books of the Bible. Murder. Writing the command from the Lord, thou shalt not murder. Moses. Like what, what separates God's people from other people is not our moral perfection, but our labeling our sin what it is, asking the Lord for forgiveness, and trusting the Lord for forgiveness. And so I imagine the shame or embarrassment Moses is feeling when God's telling him, now write this one down, thou shalt not murder. 
But that's all of us, right? We curse those main God's image. We harbor anger and hatred. And I just want you to know that there is no sin that can outsin the grace of God. That there is no act you could have committed or been a part of committing or pressuring people to commit, no amount of under your breath comments about someone, no amount of like actively like politicking to like ruin someone's day at work. I'm just telling you, everyone here desecrates the image of God. And when Jesus Christ was dying for our sins, talk about life for life, this is justice that you die for your sins, that Jesus is dying for our sin of murder on the cross, there's a prayer he prays. It says, forgive them, Lord. They know not what they do. That ignorance doesn't create innocence. We still need forgiveness. But I do think there's this reality that when you're lied to by culture again and again, it's easy to minimize the dignity and perfection and meaning and beauty of the image of God in people born and unborn. And some of you need to believe that when Christ prayed, forgive them, Lord, I know not what they do, that he's praying that for you. Because I know there's a lot of times I've sinned and I didn't know I was sinning. And there are times that I sinned and I knew I was sinning. And Jesus forgives me for all those things. And I hope that you trust him for that as well. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for the dignity you give to us being made in your image. God, let us take seriously the fact that we are made in your image and so are all other human beings. Lord, help us grieve, help us confess, and help us cling to your cross as the only source for our forgiveness from sin. In your name we pray, amen.